This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a forum for courageous conversations. Tonight's show is part of an ongoing series on domestic violence. I'll be interviewing Governor Paul LePage about his work to end domestic violence here in Maine. During his State of the State address on January 24, 2012, Governor Paul LePage acknowledged that he had grown up in a home with domestic violence. Despite the pain of these memories, he made a decision to speak out in order to help end domestic violence here in Maine. Let's start with a clip from that speech. Governor Paul LePage. The last issue I want to address tonight is one that is very, very personal to me. I am sad to say that my childhood memories are ravaged with domestic violence. Those memories are not pleasant, but I will share my past to end domestic abuse today and going forward. Every year, Nearly half of Maine's homicides are related to domestic violence. In 2011, 23 people were murdered, 11 involving domestic violence. These are real lives. Mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, uncles, aunts, and yes, children. We all feel the horrific effects of domestic violence. This tragic loss of life is unacceptable. I have zero tolerance for domestic abuse, and I need your help. More than 80% of domestic violence assaults are committed by men. It is time that men stand up Speak up and stamp out domestic violence. As men, we need to stand together as one and say no to domestic violence. And I believe that it's time we shift domestic violence from being a woman's issue to a men's issue. Governor LePage, welcome to Safe Space Radio. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I was so moved by your courage during that speech. I felt moved uh, not only by your honesty, but also by the overwhelming response from everybody. You really had everyone with you. And I was so curious to ask you, how did you decide to be so open with us? You know, there's such a culture of silence and shame about this issue, and Loyalty to family. How did you? What made you finally decide to to come forth like that? Well, it, actually, I I made a decision to uh, to attack domestic violence as a as a mission uh, last summer when uh, uh, I went golfing one day and uh, the after the golf match I went in to have a, a a beer with a friend of mine and the bartender was the lady who was killed the very next day. <laughs> Oh my goodness. by her estranged husband and I said enough enough is enough we have to just fight fight back on this issue and from then on uh, we prepared to uh, you know I worked with the uh, family violence folks and uh, 
it was an appropriate time to unveil it at the uh, uh, State of the State so that uh, it would get much coverage. And has the response been what you've hoped so far? Oh, it's unbelievable. It's phenomenal. The military has been just fantastic. The uh, colleges and high schools are participating, University of Maine's uh, teams, and a lot of their uh, their uh, team captains are all joining. And so, yes, I'm, I'm very, very pleased with the way the campaign is uh, taking off. I feel like what part of what happened was that you spoke so much from your heart and um, really touched people with your story, and it, it's it's so powerful to see what a difference that's made. And I wondered if you might tell me a little more. I, I understand that you carry a 50-cent piece in your pocket that has to do with silence, and I wondered if you could tell me that story. Yep. Uh, back in 1960, uh, uh, my dad... Uh, sort of gave me a pretty good, uh, I guess they used to call it whooping, and I was hospitalized. And in the hospital uh, that afternoon, he came in late that afternoon, it was on a Sunday, and he came in and told me that tomorrow when the doctor comes in, tell him he fell down the stairs and he gave me a 50-cent piece, and that's when I went homeless. I just dressed up. I, I got my clothes out of the locker, put them on, and left. You left even I've always carried the 50-cent piece because not so much at the time because he beat me. It's because for the first time in my life, he's asking me to lie. So never before had he pressured you to keep quiet about what was happening? No, no. Before, it always it never reached the point where I went to a hospital or anything, and, and I think he was uh, concerned that uh, he would be reported. I can understand that. And so you left before the doctor even came? Yep. Never spoke to the doctor. And, you know, since I'm a physician, one of the things we're all trying to do is to encourage physicians to screen everybody. If the doctor had asked you, if the doctor had come in early, do you think you would have felt safe to tell him? Oh, yes. Yes, at that point, my mind was already made up that I wasn't going to take it anymore. And, and it, uh, yes, if, if the doctor had been there and asked me how I did it, I would have been very clear that it, it was a... It was a beating. Right. And were there other members of your family who were also being abused like that? Oh, yes. All the boys. The, there's, uh, there was 18 of us, uh, and uh, there were 13 boys and four girls. The girls, I don't ever recall him beating on the girls, but the the ones my age, all the ones around me, 8, 9, 10, we all took it pretty pretty regularly between Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock and Monday morning. You never knew when it was going to come, but you knew it was coming. And the others, did they? were you able to stay in touch with them after you went homeless, Governor, or were you? was that one of the losses? That... That's one of the losses for the most part, although I've, I did remain uh, close to two brothers. Unfortunately, some of my brothers uh, picked up the habit. So that, well, that was one of the things I wanted to ask you. I know one of the things that, that keeps people quiet is that there's this cultural stereotype that if you were abused as a child, that you'll grow up to be an abuser. And, if we, of course, we know the majority of people who suffered abuse do not grow up to be abusers. They grow up to That's be correct. you know, the men and women who serve in so many capacities. And um, were you worried that people would assume that about you? 
Yeah, I, I've had uh, over the years. I've made some uh, some remarks in different venues where people will say that, and I say that's not always true, and it's certainly a stereotype that is unfortunate. But uh, what that tends to do is it keeps people quiet, and they're less apt to come out if they think that they're going to be stereotyped. Exactly. I think that one of the gifts that you've given us by coming forward like this is you've given us, you know, a powerful example of of not contributing to that stereotype. Oh, that's for sure. My kids would rather that I would have given them a licking instead of giving them a speech. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you were famous for your speeches, were you? <laughs> yeah. My son says, you know, some of my friends, they get, they get spent that last couple of minutes with you, we get a half-hour speech. Right. <laughs> so one of the things that I've always, you know, in hearing your story, I was so moved by it, and I'm curious to ask you, when you were that, that kid, that 11-year-old kid, how did you, what, what sustained you? How did you keep going and kind of not give in to, I, I can imagine the homesickness, the despair was great. You know, it, 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 it's a funny thing, but once you make up your mind to do something, uh, I just never look back, and you don't know what you're missing if you don't have it. So it, it was strange. I, I think there there are certainly some things that, that, that stay, you know, that you don't get away from. I mean, you lack the bonding that you have with your mom and the, the family and and I lost a lot of years with my brothers, but but I think with the uh, after a couple of years when I moved in with some surrogate families, uh, uh, they, they were very very helpful, and a lot of that was able to to be overcome. Okay. I had great mentors. I'll tell you, uh, Bruce Myrick and his wife, and Edward Collins and his wife. They would they just absolutely mentored me. To I was fortunate. I had many mentors. I'm so glad to hear that. I was curious to ask you if you if you met a, a child now who is going through this kind of domestic violence at home, what would you want to say to them? Well, we have one. We took him away from Jamaica and brought him home with us. <laughs> so, what do you uh, say to him? Well, I tell him that's one thing we we have a lot of discussions about the whole issue of uh, domestic violence that is. It's it's simply a control factor, and you have to be controlling yourself. And it's all about respecting others. If you can't respect your partner, you certainly can't respect yourself. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that you said so powerfully in your speech was really a, a kind of call to men to take this on as their issue instead of it being a woman's issue. And I'd love to hear what your thinking is behind that and, and what you're hoping for. I I really think that to me, in order for this to be battled, it's not going to be battled on the streets. It's going to be ba- battled in sort of the locker room where men, you know, amongst men. It's not going to be uh, a public uh, dialogue. I think this is going to be uh, a situation where you overhear somebody say something and you just, in a, in a group of men, and you step up and you, you make it go away. I think that's why the military has been good. Uh, they're stepping up. That's why team sports, people that play on in colleges and high schools and they're on sports teams and they're around a lot of their own, a lot of men, I think 
that's really where it's going to become socially unacceptable. I see. So when the coaches and the leaders really give the a clear message. Step up, then everybody's going to uh, stop paying attention. Communicate something. I know that my kids right now, uh, all of the kids, that, that is something that they've never seen in their home except for Devin in his home. And it's just a totally unacceptable behavior. And my, all three of them, both my daughter and my two sons, would both speak up at any time. And how, so how do you, how do you engage men? You know, how, how do you think, what's the best way to bring men on with this cause? What is the, the kind of emotional connection that will help get them connected to this? Personally, I try to bring it back to their mothers. How do you mean? I said, if you, you know, like, to me, the biggest difficulty growing up was it was never, I was never the initial target. It was always my mother. And, and when we tried to defend the, my mother, then we would take it. So my issue was always, was your mother beat like this? And did you respect it when you saw it? So why are you doing it in front of your kids to your wife or to your partner? I've heard it said that, for kids who witness domestic violence where their dad is hurting their mother, that one of the most protective things is when he really empathizes with the pain of his mother as opposed to taking on the attitudes of his father. And I'd love to yep. hear I'd love to hear how, how did that it, it sounds like you always were very protective of her, like you tried oh, to Oh absolutely. Yeah. I'll tell you, she had twenty one uh, I mean she had uh, 18 kids in just a little over 21 years, almost 22 Boy. years. So she was a saint. It, sound, it sounds like it. <laughs> she yeah. was. She was a wonderful lady. She passed away two years ago, but she she was uh, very special. She really sounds it. And it sounds like your love for her ended up really being protective for you. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And, and and that's really how we got through it is because it was, it was protecting somebody else. It wasn't me it wasn't about me it was about protecting her and so uh, even even later on in life uh it finally got to my dad that it wasn't us because we were getting bigger and he didn't dare come after us so then it was more the threat of <laughs> you don't go after mom either and did he ever did he ever stop uh not really she left him after a while she, she once i got into college then we talked her out of leaving and she left at that point uh-huh. You talked her into leaving. You encouraged her to do that. Yeah, we, yeah. We, my brother and I, one of my brothers and I, sort of took care of her, and we, we got her out from the home, and she got divorced, and then she moved in with one of my brothers uh, for a while, mm-hmm. and then when I got out of college, he and I supported her. Uh huh. So you were really able to reclaim. It sounds like a relationship with her. Were, were there was there a time out of necessity where you couldn't be in touch with her when you were younger? Oh yes, a much a long time. I mean, when I first got married, I was in Canada and she was living in Florida because she had a type A diabetes and she got in, went through a long period of bad circulation, so she couldn't be in cold weather and and so there was a long time. I'd always see her once or twice a year, but there there were long periods of time I wouldn't see her. Mm. It's wonderful to hear you speak of her. So I want to shift now to the legislation that follows from this. And tell me a little bit about the work that you're doing legislatively to try to really end domestic violence. What we're trying to do is is trying to get attorneys and DAs to take it more seriously and not allow 
uh, a domestic abuse situation to be uh, pleaded down to a misdemeanor crime. We're trying to make it a much tougher crime and not allow them to be to have the ability to to deal it down. Because one of the things we're finding is lawyers will tend to go to a district attorney and they'll try to negotiate. Uh, to go to anger management or to go to the different programs which last four, six, or seven weeks. And for a batterer, that's just simply not long enough. So we're trying to make it that they're mandatory go to a one-year batterer's program. We're changing the bail bail conditions. So if it's a domestic abuse and there's a... uh, protective order out on the individual that cannot be bailed out by a commission has to be bailed out by a judge which means that if they do it on the weekend they have to wait till monday so just to get really specific about that so if somebody has a protection from abuse order against someone then they have to be held until monday and have a judge uh really review the bail but if they don't have a pfa does that mean they could still be released that weekend then what happens then is they're going to do an assessment if it's a first-time offender, uh, any multiple offender is automatic. Uh-huh. Uh, but if it's a first-time offender, then they're going to do an assessment. There's a, they're debating now which test they want to use, but they're going to try to uh, do a risk assessment to see if there's any danger of physical harm. And if they do that, then it's going to go to the next level. What I, under- what I understand is that until now, until this the law that you're proposing that someone could be intoxicated, violent, the police could come, take him, the bail commissioner could be woken in the middle of the night and release him within half an hour, still drunk, back to the same house where the woman he just terrorized. That is, is that- correct. And that's what we're trying to eliminate. Uh, I I think we're all behind you, Governor. <laughs> I mean, just hearing that that's possible is so disturbing. I'm so, yeah, I'm, I'm I so- know. The, the difficulty that that lawyers and the district attorneys will tell you, and judges for that matter, is once the batterer has beat someone and then they've had some time away, a couple of hours maybe, or an overnight, oftentimes the abused will will try to drop charges because they're afraid of their security and where they're going to go. And that's another issue we have to work with is we have to do a better job at providing them shelter and, and and some counseling so that they know that they're not alone. They can move forward without having the the batterer being the one that's going to provide the, the resources. What I understand in the Amy Lake case was that, um, you know, the tragic uh, murder-suicide last summer was that there had been, I think, five prior violations of a restraining order, and yet he had never actually been in court when he actually murdered... Correct which is also just such a, a tragedy. And I, I wondered, are you doing anything to try to accelerate yeah. that process? That's exactly what we're trying to do. And we're working right now with, with the, attorney, the uh, DA's, district attorneys, to try to elevate it to a much more serious crime so that they have to get in front of the judges. And, and this is the other thing, is, is because it's domestic violence and because of... of the difficulty in, uh, particularly if it involves a divorce, it gets so complicated, and lawyers and DAs will ask for continuances consistently. 
and that's what we're going to try to avoid, that they can no longer do that if it involves any violence. I understand. So they can get to the courts much quicker. I understand, too, that there's a new uh, piece about strangulation that's going to be included in the law, and I wonder if you could explain that to me. That's correct. Any any uh, violence that, that brings on strangulation or attempts to strangulate someone, either by hands or with... Uh, rope or anything is going to be considered uh, uh, a major crime, and that's going to be no bail. That falls into the no bail category. I see. So they would they would face jail time without bail. That's right. They don't they don't get bailed out. They wait for the judge. What we're trying to do is make sure that the judges have better training and understanding the risk factors involved in domestic violence. And so that their judgments, when they make decisions, uh, that they have a much better uh, basis for making it. And then the other thing we're going to be doing in the laws is if it's uh, if it's some um, violence, then and they do a risk assessment, the the judge is going to have to put into the records the rationale for letting the person out. So they're going to have to document their decisions. That sounds really good. We have to do that in medicine, so it only stands yeah. to reason. We're hoping that the fact that you have to document it, you give it a little bit more thought, and with more thought, you make sounder decisions. Will there be some provisions for, I understand you're looking into some kind of electronic monitoring for people who are not incarcerated so that the victim will have some safety or some awareness of where the person might be. Will you, will you tell me more about that? Yes. What we're doing is we're looking at two types of systems. One that will deal with the batterer, uh, which would be like an ankle or a, or a wrist bracelet that would monitor him through a GPS system. They're evaluating that. And the other one that we're evaluating is, is for the victim, which is more like uh, the life, uh, life alert type system where they have a uh, like a little panic button and they that's connected to the police station and they can push that and have immediate attention from the police. That sounds like a really great That's idea. a little bit less secure, but but it's it's an added uh an added security. It's less expensive but less secure. So they're they're even, the attorney general's office is evaluating different uh systems and we're gonna hoping to be able to introduce one. When you say, what, what do you mean by that, less secure? Well, uh, Maine is such a rural state, and let's say on a Friday night, if you're in some remote little home uh, in a rural area and there's limited number of police on the road, and the police might be 20 minutes away, and a lot of damage can be done in 20 minutes. No kidding. Whereas with a with GPS type system, you can monitor that person all the time, 24/7. So if they cross a certain line, you can inter interject immediately. So what do you need from us, Governor? You know, here we have so many people are with you now. You have the most broad bipartisan support behind you. What do you need from us, the citizens of Maine, to get these bills passed? What we need, the citizens of Maine, and particularly men because men are the, the majority of the batterers, is to, one, not accept it. It is not a disease. It's not an illness. It's a control issue. And it's not appropriate for people to, to take control to the point where they cause other people harm. And we can talk it down. We were able to 
make drinking and driving uh, socially unacceptable. We've made smoking virtually uh, socially unacceptable, so we can make domestic violence socially unacceptable. But it takes all of us together to say no more. Do you feel like there are attitudes that are really important to start young with, with both boys and girls about that? Absolutely. I, I know my kids. That's all they've ever heard. So uh, <laughs> my son would be the first one to maybe do what I did once and step in when you shouldn't. But uh, <laughs> what, what happened there? Tell me that story. Oh, I was back in college. There was a gentleman that was hitting his wife, and I interfered. And then he got angry, and he had tried to have me arrested. And then when the wife was kind enough to say what was going on, they said, you should call the police and not get involved. Uh, and then just a few years ago when I was working, uh, they came to my office said that there was some gentleman in the store that was uh, hitting his child, and his two-year-old child, and he had messed in his pants, and the dad was angry, and he started beating him, so I stepped in again. And that time, while I stepped in, they were calling the police, so no harm there, but... The point is, is I know that it's risky, and you don't want to take risks where anybody can get hurt. I don't uh, uh, advise that. But there is a point where you just need to speak up and say that is not appropriate. So you give that message very clearly. Most of it occurs in, in, in a person's home. So if it's unacceptable in public, then it surely will remind people it's unacceptable all the time. Governor LePage, I want to thank you so much, uh, not only for this conversation, but for the leadership that you're taking in our state around this issue. Well, thank you. I and um, it. you have many people behind you, and I, I'm really very delighted at the work you're doing. Well, thank you so much. Tell all men they have to step up, stand up, and say no more. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann. This is Safe Space Radio. I've been talking to Governor Paul LePage about his experience growing up with domestic violence and his attempts as a governor of our state to enact legislation that really protects people and prevents domestic violence in the long run. If you'd like to listen to this show in its entirety, please go to the website at www.safespaceradio.com. You can email subscribe there to get a weekly announcement with a link to the show. You can download the podcast from iTunes. You can like us on Facebook. My thanks to Jen Hodgson and Lisa Bunker for mixing the sound, Maurice Lennon for the music, and Neil McKenty for being my consultant. Coming up next is Watchdog. <laughs>